Now, you get a sense of the of the dynamics of the of the problematics in in the in this. In other words, we are debating the meaning of words. I'm not willing to come and tell you this is what, how I define the words. I am interested of in how different Muslims at different periods defined this discourse. We learn from that. Let's take first books on Islamic law. Books on Islamic law do not discuss Hijaz. Books such as Al-Mughni or Al-Mabsut or Al-Kafi do not talk about Hijaz. They talk about Aura. And they don't talk about Aura alone. Aura is a private part. Private part of the body. But the aura in the context of prayer. This is just give you an example. This is from a Shafi source. Noel. This is the guy who compiled uh, the gardens of the righteous. He was also a, a jurist. Noel he dies around the sixth century Islam. So it starts talking about the aura, and I don't want to use the word. You know what aura means? It's the, the private parts in the body. The aura that you must cover in prayer. And it's, then it, you have to ask yourself. Why only discussed in this context? Does this tell us something about the dynamics of this discourse? Here it says, the concealing of aura is wajib. Now, what are the different categories of law in Islamic law? Fard, wajib, and adab. Fard is something if you do not do, it's a major, major sin. Like what? Fard salah If you don't pray, if you don't fast. You don't do hajj. You don't pay the zakat. All of these are fruit. Not wajibat. They're higher. What's a wajib? A wajib is something that you incur a sin, but not necessarily as big of a sin. So it's an intermediate level. Adab are often the, the small sin. So this author, the Nawawi, tells us that concealing the aura is a wajib. Not a far wajib. Right away, you start, in fact, no Islamic source ever said that concealing the aura is a fault. But you hear it in mosques all the time. He's, he's talking about prayer count. Now, you hear it all the time because you don't realize the distinction between fard and wash. I mean, this is the level that Muslim discourses have reached. They don't even know the distinction between the fard and wash. And then he says that she should cover everything. He quotes the Quranic verse that you, that we're talking about. And he says that some have said she can reveal the hand and the face. Some have said that revealing the feet is okay as well. And they have debated Mithraqur Ras at what point of the head. And then here is a very interesting point. And know that this law applies only to the free woman. The Hurra applies only to free women. As to a slave, an Emma, her prayer is valid even if she doesn't cover her hair. He goes on talking about Al-Arab. Now no, note, within the 6th century Islam, the Hurra, the free woman, all her body is Aura. All her body is Aura. All of it is private part. Except for the hands and the face. And some have said the feet as well. As to the slave woman, some have said that her body is aura as well. Slave woman, her whole body is aura. Except, illa Except for the parts of inspection. You know what that means? When you're buying a slave, the parts of the body you'll seal before you decide to buy. And the second opinion, which is the majority opinion, says the private part, the aura of a slave, is from the knee to the navel. Like the aura of a man, from the knee to the navel. 
He basically goes on about the debate about this and, and who said what and what opinion was held. And then it's, uh, he says, and this is again interesting, if a slave marries her owner, then she has to cover her hair and not expose her breasts anymore. And some have said that she does not have to cover her hair, even if she marries her owner. Often quoted is in this context here, and also the text we'll look at next, is narrated about Omar, in which it is reported that Omar forbade the slave women of Medina from covering their chests or their hair. And in one of these reports, or famous reports, that he saw a slave woman wearing a veil, and he pulled it off her head and said, what are you doing imitating the free women? What other part do we talk about the Awrah in books of law? Again, don't confuse things. I'm not talking about books of Hadith. I'm not talking about books of Tafsir. I'm not talking about books of Sirah. I'm talking about books of Fiqh. Just the law now. What the, what the Fuqaha said. The other part where they talk about the Awrah in books of law is in the context of marriage and engagement. Some people say, oh, there's no engagement in Islam. This is the khutbah. The khutbah is, is extensively discussed in Muslim sources. Some say it's in, some say it's out, but it's extensively debated. Anyway, that's something else. If one wants to marry a woman, what may he see of her before proposing? And then they start talking about al-awrah. This is a Hanbali choice, Ibn Qudama. Now, Ibn Qudama lived in the 7th century, Hijr. Again, in the context of prayer, and only prayer, he says, we talked about the, the, the private the, the private part, the awrah of a woman, and have, they have disagreed on the matter in prayer. Abu Hanifa said the feet are not part of the awrah. This and this and this said that the, the feet is. This and this and that, that the feet are not. And they have said, all have agreed that the hand and the face are not part of the awrah. In other words, she can, she can reveal the hand and the face when she prays. Then he reports that, and some have said it is the hand, it kaf, and the meaning of kaf in Arabic is up to the elbow. In, in the Arabic language, kaf nowadays we, we translate it as hand. But in the classical Arabic language, it meant up to the elbow. That was your kaf. And some have said based on that, that it is up to the elbow. In other words, she can pray exposing all the way up to the elbow, but cover everything else. And then comes to the issue of free as opposed to non-free women. Waqala. وصلاة الأمة مكشوفة الرأس جائزة لا نعلم أحدا خالف في هذا إلا الحسن فإنه من بين أهل العلم أوجب عليها الخمار إذا تزوجت أو اتخذها الرجل الرجل لنفسه. So in other words, here saying as to the slave woman, we all agree that she can pray without covering her hair, and we do not any, know anyone who disagrees on this point except the Hassan, and the Hassan is a man of knowledge, and he said that she should cover her hair if she marries. A man, or if she becomes exclusive to the man. And in our opinion, when he says in our opinion, he means the Hanbali school opinion. He hit a woman, he hit a slave, who had wore a veil, and he said, expose your hair, or expose your head, and don't imitate the free one. And other than that, as they disagreed, other than the issue of hair, they disagreed as to the exact aura of a slave woman. Whether it is 
every, in other words, her aura extends to everything other than the, the, the hands, the hair, and the neck. In other words, what he's saying is that the majority opinion says the chair and the neck and the hands and the feet of a slave woman all agrees that this is not part of her private part. But they disagree as to what, whether it is the knee, from the knee to the navel or not. Like the, like the man's private part. With a sizable opinion saying that in case of a slave, a slave girl, it is really from the, the, the knee to the navel. We're still talking about the context of prayer, but the question which I'm getting, getting to, and then when we talk, for example, about the context of marriage as opposed to prayer, same type of argument. In other words, what's your private, what's the private part? Several questions confront us here. Why isn't there a separate chapter on hijab in books of law? Why is it dealt with in the context of prayer and in the context of marriage? Note here, when is this matter discussed in the Quran? It is discussed in the context of etiquette, manners. Do you, know, do you remember that? About knocking and coming in? And because it is discussed in this context, books of law are not appropriate places to discuss etiquette or manners. Books of law are for legal issues. This is an indication that the issue of covering, uh, the only time it had serious legal ramifications is when what a woman should wear when she's praying. And in fact, if you look at books of Hizbah, administrative politics, you find the jurors basically say, well, you know, th we, th this is where it's relevant to Sharia. But then we come to the second issue. You tell us that this verse is clear, of clear meaning. And what does the verse say? You tell us when I read this verse, Surah An-Nur, verse 31, it will tell me women have to cover everything except the hand and the face. This is what you're saying. Okay. Then how do you come up with the different discourse about slave women? Does the verse distinguish between free and slave? No. It talks about women. Believers, right? The verse doesn't distinguish. But yet you read this to mean in case of free women, X. Increase of slave women, Y. It doesn't take a genius to suspect that you interpret it in light of your cultural context. And in your cultural context, free women, respectable women, covered their hair. Slave women of lower classes didn't. And that you imputed your cultural context into the verse. I don't think it takes a genius to reach that conclusion. How else are you going to come up with a distinction between the free and slave? And tell me that for a slave, everyone agrees she can uncover her hair, but a free woman can, without taking your culture. So, then remember all this long, boring speech I gave you in the beginning about how Islam came and wanted to change the social structures and the social mores? Well, guess what? They crept in again. Wasn't this the whole point? Wasn't this the whole point to stop the stratification of people according to social class? So when some, someone comes and says, oh, brother, ijma' on hijab. I say, yes, but what type of ijma'? What type of ijma' that you want me to be bound with? I am not saying that hijab is required, and I'm not saying it's not required. Frankly, I don't care. I don't have to do it, alhamdulillah, so I'm very selfish. I say, let them worry about it. Let you guys worry about it. I don't fight crusades for anyone. I mean, I don't, you know carry banners. But reason is reason. Logic is logic. Common sense is common sense. What type of ijma' do you want to come and be bound with? 
the rule of jurisprudence is you have a law. Law may not be adopted in part and left in part. Why? Because the Quran is verse that you believe in some of the book and you, you, you disbelieve in some of the book. So Muslim jurists said what, what Allah is teaching us here is don't be inconsistent. Don't say I take part and I leave part. If you're going to take a law, you have to take the whole law. If you don't want to take the whole law, let's talk again. Let's see what the new law is. Are you willing to take this law? Ijma' that slave women cover from the knee to the, to the navel. How about if we then declare ourselves slave women? Or women of lower class? Do you, can you imagine this? If one of you has the guts, and you go and say, I declare myself an Emma. You can. According to Islamic law, you can. You declare yourself an Emma. And then you can even pray in the mosque without a hair covering. And no one can say anything, according to this Islam. In fact, according to the large opinion, you can pray in the mosque covering only from the knee to the navel. You would be hot news around campus. You would be hip, hipper than hip. And no one can say anything. Is this the type of jurisprudence we want? I mean, this type of playing games with God? You can't come to people and say, you play by my games or no games. You want to play? Let's play. Then I'll declare myself an Emma and I'll go in naked and, you know, then we will do these types of trickery. It makes much more sense to have an approach that respects the divine, respects the will of the divine. Okay, what did you want to tell us? What is, what was the point here? Maybe I'll conclude, yes, I have to wear the hijab, maybe not. But take it seriously. Not a matter of, oh, well, there is Ishmael. And anyway, can we talk about the, the Islamic juristic discourses on Ishmael? Not everyone accepts. And not only that, the definitions of Ishmael. In Malikiya says, only the Ishmael of the companions at the time of Medina. In Shafi'iyah says, only the Ishmael of a fuqaha in a particular locality which binds a particular locality. Al-Hanabila say only the Ijma' of the companions generally. So even when you say Ijma', you're referring to it as if it's a concept that is well established and well defined. There are schools of law on Ijma'. Then we say, okay, so, so now we've established that there might, we suspect there might be a cultural element. I mean, you can take this sort of as me sharing with you my plan of investigation. I mean, it's either wajib or adab. That's a debate. Furud are specified clearly by text, and they are pillars of religion. In other words, there is no chance that you will be you will enter heaven if you don't do them. And there's a serious question if you're even a Muslim if you don't do them. No one has. I mean, imagine for example, awrah. People, what I'm saying is, there is no discourse on hijab. There is a discourse on awrah. Why is that important? Why is it such an important distinction? Because when you talk about private parts, you're talking about private parts at a category, as a category. You're not talking about an institution that only applies to women. So, for example, what's the private part of a man? From the knee to the navel, right? And that's the majority opinion. Now, am I willing to say that a man who is very pious, donated millions of dollars to, to Islamic activity, but plays soccer, and consequently part of his five shows, Am I willing to say that he's violated a part and consequently there's no chance he's going to be forgiven? No. And in fact, if you go out with Islamic groups, you'll find you're often wearing shorts. But yet, if you say awra is a farad, then it applies across the board. It doesn't apply to... In other words, it's technical. So if even you show as much as a half an inch under the belly button, you're, you're dead. It's history.
You can't have a schizophrenic discourse that only applies to women because there is no law of hijab. There's only a law of aura. And aura, then the discourse applies. So if it's fart, it's fart for men and women. And if it's wajib, it's wajib for men and women. That's, that's an extremely significant point. Now, if we then sense that there is some type of cultural understanding that have entered into the interpretations of the verse, we say, well, how did these Muslims understand it? How did they conceive of it? What were these cultural indications? The books of law tend to treat, tend to treat it aloofly. It's aloofness. It's as if we talk about business deals, we talk about rental property, we talk about important things. We, we're not going to waste time with this. So who do, can I go to tell me something about the discourse in this? Well, you start going to books of Sira, you start going to books of Hadith, you start going to books of Tafsir. This is a Xerox of one of the earliest commentaries ever written in the Quran. On the Quran, it's not published. This was written in the first century Islamic because of the fact that the majority of Islamic sources are not published. Only about 4% of all Islamic sources written in history are published. You have to extensively use manuscripts if you want to be a real scholar. If you want to be a dogmatist, then fine, you don't have to use anything at all. The, the rest is manuscripts. So I have a microfilm library, for example, because I, I need these manuscripts, and the only way I'm going to access them is through microfilms, and if I use the text quite extensively, I'll print it out and then I'll bind it. So now we look at this tafsir, tafsir muqatil, who, which was written 50-something hijra, 56 hijra. So it's, uh, it's very, I mean, it's still, you're still talking about the time when people had even living memory of the Prophet. It's possible. I mean, you might be 70 years old, you, you've, uh, you've ran, you ran into the Prophet, and you might, you might even have lived with him. And you also know, the, the, you, you know, you definitely encountered Muawiyah and Ali and uh, these old people. You look up to Atul you look at this, and you find here three things about commentary about the Istizan coming in, about the Istizan to knock, seek permission to come in. And then you find a single paragraph about the issue of women dress. And he, what he reports is, it is imperative that the, that men and women lower their gaze. For the Prophet said, and it has been reported from some of the companions, that was quite common in the very early age not to specify the companion report, that the rights of your, the, the, like, haqq al-farsh, means um, your private part is entitled for protection. And this verse was revealed about a woman called Asma' bint Murshid. She had, the, 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 the word says, Bani Hari'ah Nah, or Nah, we often leave the, the dot out. What Nakhl means is a ga- like a gathering place for women. So Asma bint Murshid had this structure and women used to go there and come from it exposing their chest and their legs and their, and their hair. And the people in Medina disliked that or found that to be ugly. Ma aqbaha hadha. So the, the verse was revealed and the meaning of Zina is that they may show their earrings, and not here, their earrings and their eyeliner. You know what the couple is, stuff you put around the ear, their eye, that, that, that they may show that. And it extorts them to be modest and preserve their chastity. It doesn't tell us, it doesn't tell us anything about what you encounter later. Then, so, note here, he doesn't report the hadith from Aisha, he doesn't report any 
Now, there is another tafsir, but I, I didn't have time to, uh, to print it out. It's Ta'alibi. There are two Ta'alibis. There is Ta'alibi in the 5th century and there is the original Ta'alibi. The, the Ta'alibi in the, in the 1st century, late 1st century. And the Ta'alibi says that basically gives the verse an interpretation of modesty. That's it. I mean, it says a quote for modesty. So then we, we continue our search and we look to certain things on Quran, Quranic commentary. A lot of the Quranic commentaries do not give us something that new. This one, for example, reports something that is, that it has been reported from the Prophet, that Dina means the hands up to the elbows, the face, and the feet. And then, basically, other than that, nothing new here. These Quranic, these two Quranic commentaries I sort of looked at and closed, I basically agree with the Fuqaha that her, her private part is everything except for her face, her hand, her feet, and that's it. There's debate over the feet, there's debate over the neck. And there's debate as to whether the hand includes up to the elbow or not. Well, the point I'm trying to tell you is that you even have to have historical depth in research. You can't just go to a single source and open it and, okay, I read it, Salaamu Alaikum. You have to have historical depth. You have to begin from the beginning and trace. Like, exactly like an investigator, exactly like a, someone would investigate a, a scholarly issue, an academic issue. Al-Mawardi, in, in this tafsir, gives it a rather very interesting bend to it. He says, they have disagreed between the type of zina. And some said, that the zina intended in the Qur'an is the, وَلَا يُبْدِينَ زِينَةَهُنَّ is a zina zahira, the zina that is always appar- out, apparent to the outside, and the zina al-batina, the concealed zina. So in other words, they disagreed what is intended by the word zina. Those who said, a zina al-batina, that it means a zina, the concealed zina, that it, it means tafaqo, bragging. Very interesting. When he reports that opinion, that there was an opinion that what the Quranic verse is saying is, lower your gaze, cover your private parts, and why is that opinion? Because it says cover your private parts, and then talks about zina. They say, well, why would it repeat itself? So, what they, they use certain linguistic issues about zina, and say, well, it means that do not arrogantly display your positions, their social positions. Then Marty says that this opinion was rejected by the majority, and the majority have said that this verse is about al-nadar wal-iltizal. In other words, looking at something with enjoyment. And they have debated as to what you may look at. And they have said that all forms of looking with enjoyment are haram. While others have said only those things that you are not allowed to look at, in other words, you look, you might look with enjoyment at things such as the face. Which would be, again, if you said that in the mosque today, people would kill you. But he reports it. Doesn't mean it's right. He reports it. He had the integrity and the honesty not to appoint himself God and censor God's religion for God. He's quite humble. He said, it's my job to report this and report this and that's it. And then he tells you his opinion at the end, of course. And then he says that they have disagreed, and this is where Maududi comes in. As to the meaning of khimar, he tells you the two opinions I've told you. And he says, however, some have said that the khimar is what comes down on the face. And that the Arabs know, knew no other khimar. And what the verse is referring to is that that veil that comes down on your face would cover your chest. Because the Arabs, according to, to this opinion, used to walk around covering the face, the woman of high noble status covering the face, 
but not the chest. And then he said, as to the rest, it's actually, and note here the very interesting discourse, that it emphasizes that proper zina must be shown to the husband, not to other than the husband. And then he reports a hadith that the Prophet had condemned a woman who does not put eyeliner or whatever that is defined for her husband. In other words, she doesn't care what her husband thinks about the way she looks. But it's, a, it's an interesting, I mean, he sort of flipped the, the, the argument. A bit later on, he says, and some have said, oh, now we start getting into sort of the interesting stuff. He says that some have argued, Abdullah ibn Abbas have argued, he's one of the companions, that she appears, that a woman appears normally with her arm exposed up to the elbow, the feet, the face, the neck. And they have said, اعتباراً بالعرف والعادة. Very important. اعتباراً بالعرف والعادة. That, and we understand this according to the عرف, to what people do, and عادة, the customs. Now, here it provides us with a hint of the problem we're confronting with the distinction between slavery and free women. Did that school come in to read this verse according to Urf and Ada? Did it give it a, an interpretation according to the cultural context? Well, when we looked at the first century tafsir, we didn't find it. It doesn't make any distinction. It doesn't even mention anything. Then when? When did it come in? Already Mawardi, he's in the, in the fourth century and he tells us it's, uh, sorry, in the fifth century, he tells us it's, it's already in. The distinction is already in. It comes in more or less during the Abbasid Empire. That's, a, that's really the first time it's mentioned. I have one of the richest microfilm, manuscript microfilm libraries probably in the world. And I have researched different commentaries. And the first appearance it makes is in the early Abbasid age. So that's about 130 Hijra. So by the second century, this verse is given, the distinction, what I'm talking, comes in. The distinction between a free woman and a slave woman comes in at that late. That's quite late. By, by Islamic jurisprudential standards. If, if the early tafsirs don't give it any specific context, can we then suspect that when the cultural interpretation started coming in to distinguish between a free woman and slave, it also came in to define what a proper woman would do or not. I mean, why are we going to say, oh, the cultural interpretation distinguish, influence the distinction between woman and slave, but nothing else. But we cannot simply act on suspicion and rely on that. So we come to, we continue our investigation and try to look for some type of confirmation. We find this extremely interesting opinion from the 5th century history. He says, in all these issues, this is the Quranic uh, counters, in, and he's, he's explaining why the, the, the she's allowed to, to reveal her, to, to not allow to show her hands and her feet. He says, because concealing them, in concealing them there is hardship on a woman. Haraj, لِأَنَّ سَطْرَهَا فِيهِ حَرَجٌ 
فإن المرأة لا تجد بدا من مزاولة الأشياء بيدها. Because covering them, in covering them, there is hardship upon the woman. And woman has no alternative but to approach these things with her hand. Consequently, there is a need for her to reveal certain parts of the body. And then he goes on, he says, and for example, when she appears in court, when she prepares her marriage, when she walks in the road, when she does this and that, then he says, يعني إلا إلا ما جرت العادة والجبلة على ظهوره والأصل فيه الظهور وإنما سومح في الزينة الخفية and so on, so on. And then he says, well, this is recognized according to what is known by al-ada wal-jibillah. Jibillah means your natural state. What you naturally or instinctively think. Custom, ada is custom, and jibillah, natural state. And he is, he is justifying the law on the basis of what? Haja, need. This is what a woman needs to do. Then he talks about the issue of khimar and al-jayb, and he says, the women in Medina, their, the openings in their chest used to be, used to be very large. And they used to throw their veils behind their back. Consequently, their chests were completely exposed. The order came that they must turn their veils to the front to cover the chest. And then he goes on into further specification. He says, but they have disagreed as to where the original position of the khimar was. In other words, did it, even if it came from the head, did it come from here or here? Or was it attached to the, to the back like in a ponytail? That doesn't tell you. Okay? This is Tafsir al-Razi, 7th century. He says, some have argued that the, that, that recognition of the, of Gina depends on natural in, in, intuitions and inclinations. And what would appear illa ma yuzhirul insan fil jariya? What would be exposed by a person in common practice and, and customs? And in the, and he says, and in the case of women, al jariya, Note what I'm saying. is saying, what is dina and what is not dina. In other words, what may you expose, what may you expose. He says this depends on al-adah jariya. Al-adah jariya follows practices, follows customs. And he says, in the case of women, the follow practice is that she may only reveal her face and her hands. Aha. Now, does this mean... If the custom, there is a law, there is a principle in Islamic law that says that the operative cause for a law exists with the law. If the operative cause is no more, the law is no more. If it is, the law is. Then, if that's the case, if that's the base for the law, what if the common practices is not to consider that part of the woman, not to consider the hair a part of the awrah? In other words, does the Sharia come and said, say, this has to be covered. But there is a zone of, I mean, zone of, uh, of, of things varied by custom. Or does it come and say, I will define custom that is appropriate forever. 
Now, then he said, however, it has been, now note, note here, فَأَمَرُوا بِسَتْهِ مَا لَا تُؤَدِّ الضَّرُورَ إِلَى كَشْفِهِ وَرُخِصَ لَهُمْ فِي كَشْفِ مَا أُعْتِيدَ كَشْفِهِ وَأَدَّتْ الضَّرُورَ إِلَى إِظْهَارِهِ إِذْ كَانَتْ شَرَائِعُ الْإِسْلَامِ حَنِيفِيَّةَ سَهْلَةَ سَمِحَةَ This is amazing part. He says, what was allowed for women to expose is what necessity and need would require them to expose. He later on says, a slave woman does not cover because she's a working woman. And consequently covering, she's not a woman of high class that she can stay home and be supported. Remember in Islamic law, if you marry a woman of a certain social status and she demands a servant, you have to supply it. And this is for the men. Maybe you didn't know that. But your wife has the right to demand that you supply her with a servant. She can put it even in the condition of contract. It means the condition as a, as a, a condition in the marriage contract. Now, but if, if that's the issue, that slave women, the distinction, he denies that it's a matter of social status. He says, no, 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 we have nothing against slave women. But it's just that their lifestyle requires them to cover less. And then he says, and it was permitted to them, it permitted to free women and slave women, to reveal from their bodies what necessity and need requires them to reveal because the laws of Islam, Hanifiyya Sahla Samiha. You know what does that mean? Hanifiyya Sahla Samiha means they are easy, accommodating, flexible laws. That's a razi, that's not some wacko jurist. A lot of what we know about the Qur'an comes from a razi, Fakhruddin al-Razi, who wrote in the 7th century. So, are you telling us then that it is according to need, <coughs> custom, and because the laws of Islam are flexible, but the laws of Islam are not flexible when it comes to food. I mean, no one can come and tell me, well, my lifestyle doesn't allow me to pray. Touch. I mean, there are, when it comes to afar, there are no ifs, ands, or buts. But let me put aside. It would make sense if we're talking about adab. But it wouldn't make sense, maybe, maybe no, it would, or would it depend on wajibat. If you're telling me it could vary with customs and according to, to, to needs and necessities, then what degree of obligation will immediately exclude fault? There is no way. There are no exceptions, for example, for a failure to pray or a failure to fast. Unless you're sick or... Even if you're sick, you have to pray when you're sick. You don't have to go up and down, but you have to say the words. Even if you're on your deathbed, you still have to do the prayer. Because it's a fault. No ifs, ands, or buts. It's a fault. Now, I said, but wait a minute, if this discourse is there, I want to know whether it carried itself into jurisprudential practice. I am summarizing to you about five years worth of, of legal research in this issue, which I plan to write and then die, and then leave to Grace to take care of after I'm dead. But there, there is no way that the, the discourses are not susceptible to even rational discourse that you can actually write it and publish it in your lifetime. I hope that I just live long enough to, to write this material. There is a well-known Maliki jurist who wrote al-Muafaqat, al 
And Shatwi lived in the 8th century. And as I was investigating, attempting to find, okay, well, I want to see concrete evidence of this. I mean, I want to see this making a difference in actual laws. I mean, the jurists are so arrogant about this matter, they don't really talk about it. And is it possible that it just didn't enter into Islamic discourses? I clearly have evidence of veiled women. I have evidence of that. I have evidence of women's face being veiled. I have evidence of that from certain geographic areas in Islamic history and so on. But how about evidence for the opposite? And then, among other places, I found in Muwafaqat the following. He's talking about what is Hassan and what is Qabih. And he says, No, may Allah bless you, that there are things about Hassan, Hassan means good, and Qabih means ugly, bad. There are things about goodness and badness which vary with the day and age. And place and tradition. Example of that is covering the head. For that varies according, according to the geographic issue. For it is, in some places, an ugly thing to do, failing to uncover, to cover the head. And, in fact, he says, in the eastern parts of Islamic territory, it is an ugly thing not to cover your head. When Bilad al-Maghribiyya, it is, not ugly or reprehensible to fail to cover your head. And this is in the case of men and women. Now, this is very interesting. And then you find out after that, that in many of the Islamic law that came from Eastern territory, a man that did not cover his hair was not considered credible to give testimony in court. And same for a woman. In Maghribi territory, not so. And this is, again, then you, I found, for example, Bayan al by Ibn Rushd, in which he talks about the mosque in Maghrib that was well known because it was frequented by a tribe of women with uncovered hairs. But it seemed that these women used to color their hair a certain color, and that, that's why that mosque became famous. So, finally, we do not say, and no one who has any reason can say, that women are superior to men, or that women are lower than men. However, we have seen people who persecute women in the worst form, worst form, and disrespect them and even despise them, and conspire to deny them any rights that they might have. It is shameful for a man to only be able to respect his fathers and uncles, only by disrespecting his mothers. In other words, that you don't need in order to put, to, to praise men, or to, to respect, show respect men, you don't need to put women back. And that is why we have written this book, and so on and so forth. Now, when do you think this, when do you think this text was written? It was written today, it was written in the first century. It was written by Zahiz, and from that text, you get a sense for a continuing conflict between men and women. Zahid basically is extremely unhappy about the fact that there are a lot of men around that hate women and go around persecuting them. And in fact, elsewhere, he talks about the hijab issue, and, the, he, and note here, and Zahid was from Iraq. In his context, he is very unhappy because he's constantly talking about how People, in, men in Iraq, treat the woman as if she is 
and impurity and high want to hide her away. In the context of Egypt, things were completely different. A famous treatise written by an Iraqi jurist in the 6th century who had gone and visited Cairo, Fustar, came back and wrote a book on how morally corrupt Egyptian women were. Because he said, I went to the market and I found them roaming around in colored clothes without their hair skin covered or their this and that. And I found them sitting in the Azhar Mosque with their legs extended. These Egyptians are corrupt people and so on. Then he went back to Iraq. And of course the book eventually reached Egypt. Three books were composed in response to him. And the book said, you Iraqis, you are so ignorant and foolish, you do not understand the first thing about religion. You hide away your women because you are afraid of your women. And so on. I mean, in other words, Egyptian jurists responded to the Iraqi jurists and gave him some of his own medicine. Other than the entertainment value of it, there is then evidence of a dynamic diversity. In other words, at the end of all of this, the point is that the picture was not clear and was never clear. You will find plenty of sources that say cover the face. You will find plenty of sources that say cover everything except the hair and hands. But one must look at the discourse itself and what can one learn from the discourse. And how essential is this really to Islam anyway? I mean, imagine a religion, the only message of this religion, I mean, not the only, but at the core of the message of this religion is, we suspect that people are sexually obsessed, and we must make sure they never get excited. Many people, there are, much, there are things that are much more important than this in life. Sexual excitement is not what it's all about. It's, it's amazing that if you compare books on Islamic law written in the medieval period, a book's 30 volumes. Out of 30 volumes, how much talks about sexual enticement? If you get 20 pages, you'll be lucky. Nowadays, the vast majority of material published on Islamic law is about sex. I call it personally Islamic playboy. The dynamic started from the time of the Prophet, and, and it continued to be complex and diverse. In other words, it advanced and retracted at different, different areas, uh, at different times. And it is impossible to generalize and say, well, it's like that according to some tradition. If you look at the role of women in Spain, for example, very different, very, very, very different than the role of women in, in Basra or Kufa. If you look at the role of women in Pustah, in fact, I'll tell you what, in my research, I show that the role of women in Pustah, Cairo, is different than the role of women in Aswan, Egypt. I mean, same place, different cities. And in one context, you find women in markets. And another context, you, you, you find women in markets, you find them uh, in Egypt in the, in the 17th century, 90% of all Egyptian property, private property, was owned by women. What does that tell? Do you know what it means when 90% of the property, there's a book about that by Atat Marceau. When, when all the property is owned by women, it means they're the main employers. They're, they're, they're the ones doing the hiring. Then in the contemporary age, I mean, in the pre-modern age, there used to be debate. People like Israq has wrote, wrote, and he became very famous. And people did not destroy his material and did not uh, make him disappear from the face of the earth in terms of intellectually. All of this material that I'm fighting, you were preserved to us by even the jurists who disagreed with it. That you know ultimately it's not up to you, it's up to God. And your duty is to represent the, the different points of view. And the, uh, for example, the, the cover everything except the face and the hand. It's based on the, on the, 
on the uninterrupted practices of Muslims since ages, that since everyone seems to have believed that for a very long time, that it must be, must be so. That's the argument. And on these hadiths that I cited to you, that's the argument. Whether one wants to accept or not. But in the, the role of women in the contemporary ages is different ballgame. I don't think it has very much to do with the sources at all. 